This morning we are continuing in our study in the book of Exodus. We come to Exodus chapter 18. Our complementary passage is Acts chapter 15. I could have chosen a whole slew of uh, New Testament passages. I think 1 Timothy 3 would have been appropriate. But, but I wanted to... I wanted to focus on uh, Acts chapter 15 to make this point as we are reading the text that the most significant theological crisis that hit the New Testament church after Jesus' ascension into heaven was what is the relationship of Gentiles to Jews? Uh, in order to become a believer, do Gentiles need to follow the law of Moses? And so we have this council at Jerusalem where they come and they debate the matter and they determine no. But I want you to hear how this council is communicated. It's not communicated from Peter, God's vicar, uh, the first pope of the church. It's also not communicated from the apostles. Uh, the council of elder, or of apostles, rather. Uh, it, the, the way in which it's communicated is significant. So that was the point in my choosing this passage. So if you would open your Bibles to the Acts chapter 15, in honor of God's word, please stand. Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 22, hear God's word. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. As far in the reading of God's word, please turn to Exodus chapter 18. Continuing the reading of God's word. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people. How the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he had sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. 
Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them in the way. Now the Lord had delivered them. Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel. In that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses, father-in-law, before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone, and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me. And I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people. Men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. And place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, you will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Thus far in the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, as we have read, we come and we desire to hear your word, speak to us by your spirit, open our eyes, that we may behold our Savior. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. Any good manager will tell you that life is a marathon, not a sprint. The Franklin Covey time management people, their big thing is the importance of sharpening the saw, taking time away from your busy whirlwind life to sharpen yourself, to sharpen that saw that makes you more effective in the work that God has called you to do. Now, While we all can recognize this, 
How many of us actually practice it, and particularly practice it in the ways in which you and I engage as Christians? The fact of the matter is, for many of us, we run, 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 run until we drop. We don't take this principle of sharpening the saw seriously. I think one of the reasons that we do this, I know it's a, it's a struggle of mine, and as I prayerfully explored this, I think that the reason that I do this in my own ministry, and maybe you can reflect or, or resonate with this or not, frankly, is pride. If I take time off, and some guy comes in here and delivers a dud of a sermon, then how does that reflect on my reputation? How does that reflect on the ministry of Sterling Presbyterian Church? My reputation is at stake. The, the church's reputation is at stake. And so I've got to be the guy, I've got to do it, I've got to do it, I've got to do it. Frankly, that's pride. That, that, that is nothing less. Here in this text, this seemingly irrelevant text, I mean, these are, these are two guys obviously speaking another language, living in a completely different culture. One is a nomad. Uh, the other is leading a bunch of Israelites out of, out of slavery in Egypt and leading them through the desert completely disconnected from our culture, and yet lay down a principle that absolutely governs the church from this point forward. This is the first time that you see elders mentioned in the Scripture. And from this point forward, it's always elders that God points us to. We'll see that a little bit here in just a minute. But before we get into chapter 18, let's just step back. Let's step back and look at this tapestry that is the book of Exodus. This, this grand visual that is displaying to us the glory of God. And it begins really in chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, where this 80-year-old man, a fugitive from justice meets God at Mount Horeb in the form of a burning bush and receives his commission. And his question to God is, who are you? Who is this God? What am I supposed to say to the people? that, that Who is this God that sent me? And really, that answer if, if we're going to have sort of a, a grand title that covers this whole book, the grand title would be, Who are you? That's Moses' question. God responds with, I am that I am. I am utterly self-sufficient. You cannot know me the way that you're looking to know me. You can discover me. You can learn more of me. But I am not something that's going to fit into your box. What's Pharaoh's first statement to Moses? 
Moses walks up in obedience to God and he says, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go. First words out of Pharaoh's mouth is, Who is God? I don't know this God. Who are you talking about? Moses asks the question in chapter 3 and verse 14. Pharaoh asks the question, Who is God? Pharaoh finds out in a rather brutal way. Pharaoh finds out just exactly who God is with these plagues that God brings upon him, ultimately leading to his very death. That covers the chapters 7 through 11. But Israel still doesn't existentially, experimentally know who God is. In other words, they haven't experienced who God is. They've heard of God. They've seen God in the plagues, but they haven't experienced who God is. And so, really, we could wrap up chapters 14 through 17 with God showing Israel who He is. He's the God who makes the bitter water sweet. He's the God who provides bread from heaven. He's the God that calls Moses to strike the rock and water flows forth in the desert. He's the God that protects them from the hands of the Amalekites. He is this God who provides and protects for His people in the midst of all their dangers. So really, that's the entire story of Exodus up here through chapter 18. If you'll notice, I skipped over two chapters. Because the question, who is God, is not an intellectual exercise. The question, who is God, goes hand in hand with the question of what is your relationship to Him? What is your relationship to this God? Because every man, woman, boy, and girl is either a Pharaoh or a Moses. Every man, woman, boy, and girl is either spitting in the face of God or bending the knee to God. And so the question, who are the Israelites, is really covered for us in chapters 12 and 13. The Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They are the people for whom the blood of this sacrificial lamb sprinkled on the gates, on the doorpost of their houses, provides protection from the angel of death. And they are the people who are going to keep this feast of unleavened bread, this symbol of purity, this symbol of I'm taking holiness seriously. That's who Israel is. Now they do this imperfectly, obviously. I mean, they... We've seen as soon as the Feast of Unleavened Bread and this, this, this you know, robust uh, the commitment to walking holy before God, next thing you know, six weeks later, they're saying, man, it was so much better back in Egypt. This is horrible. God brought us out here to starve us and, and make us die of thirst. And Moses is saying, they're going to kill me if, if God doesn't interject and do something. So, so. This is no holiness text or, you know, no, no uh, higher life text. These people have not achieved sinless perfection by any stretch. Thank God, because neither of you are me. <laughs> so, so we can find our feet very much walking together with the Israelites in this pilgrim 
journey. Now, what you may not be mindful of is that we're actually pretty much at the end of the book. The rest of the book takes place here. Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. This mountain, did you notice Moses keeps circling back and back around this mountain. He sees the burning bush on Mount Horeb. God says, go to Egypt and bring the people here to worship me. And so that's what he's been doing. He's been leading the people to Mount Horeb. Next week, or sorry, next chapter, we're going to see Mount Sinai, the giving of the law. And from there on through chapter 40, all of it takes place right there at Mount Sinai. This exodus is not covering the period of their wilderness wandering. It's not covering their entering into the promised land. This exodus, this coming out, is a coming out from slavery, from sin, and a coming to worship, to God, to His law, the dimensions of the tabernacle and sacrificial system and all those things. But here in between, in this, in this transition from answering the question of who God is and who the Israelites are in relation to God, in the transition from that to this ultimate answer of who is God, God is the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery and sin, Therefore, you will have no other gods before me, etc. The Ten Commandments. In between, we have this interesting chapter, chapter 18. So with that, with that as an introduction, we'll look at chapter 18 for about four minutes here. Maybe a little longer. I want you to notice some things. Three things in particular out of this chapter. The first is, I want you to notice Moses's. Humility. Moses' humility. And the second thing I want you to notice is Moses' helpers. His humility, his helpers. And then thirdly, his mission. His humility, his helpers, and his mission. Now, the humility of Moses here is, is kind of just presented. It's not, it's not highlighted. Uh, it's just sort of presented. This is, this is who Moses is. This is the type of guy that Moses is. Here he is, the man who has just faced down Pharaoh. He's the man who has thrown his staff down in front of the greatest political power that the world has ever seen. That serpent has come up. Uh, Moses has done all these amazing things at God's command. And what does he do when his father-in-law comes? He bows before him. The recognition of a superior. He, he bows before him. Our, our text says that Moses went out to meet his father-in-law there in verse 7. Bowed down and kissed him. And that's the sign of someone who's recognizing another as his superior. Moses could easily be the great deliverer. That could be his, his shtick. In fact, 
it would make a lot of sense because he clearly has got people that are unhappy with his rule, with, with, with what he's doing. I mean, just the previous chapter, they've been grumbling, and now they've actually come to the threat of violence against him. Moses needs to clamp down, right? Moses needs to say, listen, I'm the guy with the staff. I'm the guy who whacks rocks and waters gush forth. You better shut up and sit down and listen to me. I, I can do some really amazing things with this staff that God has given me. Listen and obey. He doesn't do that at all. You see this, this heart of Moses here. He's not only humble in that he bows before Jethro, but he's also humble in being willing to delegate responsibility. That's Jethro's main message here, is you can't take all this on yourself. This is not a sprint. It's a marathon. And you're going to wear yourself and you're going to wear the people out if you keep doing this all the time. You need to delegate. Now, guys, what is the hardest thing for something that you're passionate for? What is the hardest thing for you to do? Is it not to take your hands off of it? To let somebody else, or ladies, I guess this could apply apply either way, But let's say that you are passionate for cooking. You you just you have a passion for this dish. This dish that you do is your dish. It is your signature dish. And your spouse comes in and goes, Hey, I think I could make that a little bit better. What's your response? (laughs) Don't you dare! Don't you touch it. This is my baby. (laughs) This is perfect just the way it is. If I wanted you messing around with this beautiful creation that I have made, this beautiful recipe, if I wanted you messing around with it, I'd let you know. In the absence of me letting you know, stay away. This is my baby. And we can do that in ministry. We can do that in anything that we're passionate for. The fact that Moses is willing to delegate, to take this authority that he has and exercise this through other elders is important. I give you, I give you just a real quick practical application of I think how this, how this can work. And that is all churches have deacons, right? Deacons are something that, I mean, they're, Every church has deacons, not every church has elders, which is ironic, because I think the scriptural warrant for elders is more obvious than the scriptural warrant for deacons, even. But every church has deacons. And typically, what is it that the deacons do? They do all the physical stuff. If the piano is laying on its side in our hallway out here, Who's the person that I'm going to go talk to? The deacons. (laughs) And I'm going to say, I got a problem. You got a problem. It's not my problem anymore. It's yours. Make the piano work. Deacons, we often look at as the people that do all the work. But a better model, something that our deacons do try try to promote, is facilitating the congregation doing the work, facilitating you 
engaging in that work of ministry to one another. Delegating the work is itself a sign of humility. And then finally, the, the, the great example, or the, the reason that this is a great example of Moses' humility, is because by delegating this to other men, by delegating the responsibility, Moses is placing himself in a position where God can remove him from the picture. And the work of the children of Israel is still going to continue just fine. That's exactly what happens. Moses is taken up. He goes to a mountain and is seen no more. And seamlessly, Joshua takes over. Because Moses isn't the critical piece in this movement that God is doing. And again, just quick application. I realize we're we're way, way over on time, but quick application. I think this is one of the problems with megachurches. I think this is one of the problems, and it, I don't guess it has to be megachurches. I mean, we can, I can, I can be my own little petty tyrant dictator here with a small congregation, just as much as somebody can with ten thousand uh, people in their congregation. But, but this whole idea of celebrity, of of me wanting you to see that I'm the essential part of Sterling Presbyterian Church, all of that goes against this model that Moses lays out for us in the way that he responds to Jethro, bowing, kissing Jethro, and heeding Jethro's counsel. But then quickly, Moses' helpers. In verse 21, it's interesting these helpers that are described because I've been, I've been in the church for a long, long time. I've been, I've been a pastor, I've been a Christian, uh, prior to that, <laughs> thankfully that's how it's supposed to work, uh, but, but I've been a pastor and a Christian for a long, long time, and I've seen people being chosen for office for reasons other than are given here. In other words, this man clearly pulls in a six-figure salary, and he's not tithing. So guess what's going to make him tithe? Skin in the game. Let's make him an elder. <laughs> if he's an elder, then surely he's going to start tithing. And I can tell you, no, he won't. Uh, <laughs> this guy has got such gifts for God, and but he's so sketchy in his church attendance. Let's make him a deacon. If we make him a deacon, that's going to that's going to stir him. No, it won't. You just got to have a deacon and never goes to church. The men that God calls for here, verse 21, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. It's the character. And interestingly, I'm not going to read it, but in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, the qualifications for elder that are given there by Paul in 1 Timothy 3, think about them. They're all character. And they all line up exactly with this. Men who are serious about their walk with God. Men of ability, who fear God, who are trustworthy, and who hate a bride. Men of godly character. That's who God uses. Not men of skill. Not men of administrative wizardry. Not men of business acumen. 
men and women who are devoted. People who are devoted to him. It's also, think about Israel choosing Saul. That's precisely why the choice of Saul to be their king was so offensive to God. God says to Samuel, they didn't reject you, they rejected me. What was the main qualification for Saul being the first king of Israel? He's a mighty man. He's a man of war. He's he's a buff guy. He's a warrior. He's He's a strong man. He's accomplished in the battlefield. Precisely the opposite of the leadership qualities that God says to look for. And so, when the children of Israel choose Saul, and it's a disaster, but when they choose Saul for leadership, God says, this is a rejection of me. Thirdly and finally, let's look at Moses' mission. And that's in verses 19 and 20. This is Jethro speaking. He says, now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Represent the people to God and instruct the people from God. Now, do you you agree that that's what that verse is saying? That's Moses' mandate. Represent the people to God and represent God to the people. That's, that's his mandate there. It's ironic, or not ironic, but it, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me that that is precisely the standard that the apostles set themselves to. In Acts chapter 6, when the Apostles are getting overwhelmed by the needs of the widows and, and the, the issues that are going on there in terms of food and clothing and shelter. In verse 2, Acts chapter 6, verse 2, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and the wisdom whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Do you see that? Do you see that exactly what Moses is called to do, represent the people to God, represent God to the people, is exactly what the apostles say, this is our chief calling. Represent the people to God in prayer and represent God to the people in the ministry of the word. Now, this is why I think this is, and, and this, this theme of elders, as I mentioned, it picks up here in, Genesis, in, in Exodus 18, but it continues on through Revelation. We're, we're constantly coming back to elders and elders and elders and God working in this manner. So that, Beloved, this is nothing less than your story and my story. This is the church. And this is how God has raised up leadership within the church. One quick example of the benefit of this. Every Presbyterian, 
and maybe others, but I know Presbyterian, every Presbyterian constitution opens with these words. Doesn't matter what denomination. Everyone opens with these words. Jesus Christ is the only king and head of the church. Moses isn't. And that becomes crystal clear from this passage. Moses gives the authority out because he is not going to be the central figure in the, in the life of Israel. Jesus Christ is the only king and head of the church. And working in this model takes the attention off of one individual. But then, I want to encourage you with this. And the question is, how much does God love his church? Look at what he's done for Israel. Look at what he's done for them. Look at what he'll continue to do for them. Look at how God will continue to care for this foolish, stubborn, wayward people. But will continue to shine his love and his care upon them. Beloved, this is the church. This is you. And this is me. We get to read the stories of our ancestors. And we get to see what God is continuing to do in his love for the church, in his love for you, in Christ Jesus. So as we step away from this passage, let's step away with a thanksgiving to God that he loves his church so much that he's not going to let one guy become the critical guy, unless that one guy, of course, is Jesus Christ. He's going to say to Moses, you need to delegate the authority. And he's going to say, I love my church, and I'm going to protect her through every storm. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for guiding and protecting your church through the ages. As you give to her elders, as you give to her those that will not become the central focus, but will instead point to Christ. As Moses gave himself diligently to representing the people to you, representing God's word to the people. We pray, Father, for our own elders. We pray for each one of us that we would not be the center of attention, but that Christ Jesus would. We pray in his name. Amen.